This time on The Learning Hack, we're asking, what is the role of the learning function in the future? More importantly, perhaps for you people, does it have one? Welcome to The Learning Hack, a podcast about the people and technologies that are creating the future of learning. I'm John Helmer. Now, guess what? Learning is cool. Learning is cool. Learning is cool. I'm learning. Learning is fun. Knowledge is power. Knowledge. Education. As a global head of talent, my guest this episode has spent a lot of time at conferences and trade shows talking to people who are trying to sell her learning tech and finds a worrying disconnect between the industry and people like her that it is selling to. Worryingly, none of them seem to know very much about how people learn. But instead of just bitching about vendors on social media, she decided to make it the subject of her PhD thesis. Kate Fitzgerald, Head of Fact, tell us about her. Hack Facts. Tarina Gonzalez-Fersh is Head of Talent for the Software One Academy, a learning and development leader, a fellow of the Learning and Performance Institute, and currently also a doctoral candidate at Middlesex University. She has been researching the future of learning and the L&D function in technology-accelerating organisations. The research looks at new, emerging and evolving organisations to establish at what point they should introduce a managed learning function, if indeed they should, and what the role, structure and remit of that function should be. So, Jay Curtis, Head of Themes. What themes did we cover? Serena's immediate experience is in the technology sector where she works, so when it comes to tech innovation, she's really at the forefront of new developments. But that allows her to talk more generally about the role of L&D in the future, since a lot of what's currently rocking her boat will shortly be rocking everybody else's. And she's spoken to people in other sectors too, so the work has a wide applicability. Serena has a real passion for her subject and brings a lot of energy to the debate. I really enjoyed talking to her. But what makes her a standout guest for me is that she's bringing us the preliminary results of her PhD research before her thesis has even been written. This is a box-fresh take on the future of L&D. Serena, welcome to The Learning Hack. Hi, John. Thank you for having me here. (laughs) You're welcome. First of all, can you tell us about your role at Software One and about the Software One Academy? Absolutely. So I uh, created Software One Academy about a year and a half ago under the vision of our CEO. Uh, The idea was to create a corporate university and an education philanthropy with a difference. So we uh, source, recruit, develop, and then transition grassroots level technical talent from communities all over the world uh, and and people who would not necessarily have a chance at a career in technology. So they come from non-traditional education routes like boot camps or charities. Um, And what we do is take them on, we incubate them and then transition them into Software One. Um, So it, it, it is L&D, but it's also talent acquisition, it's also workforce planning, um, and, and, and it's also, like I keep saying, this bridge, this w- way to grow your future workforce. And is that the way to deal with the skills shortages in, in your industry? Is that the intention? 
Uh, absolutely. It's no secret. You look at any um, report at the moment from, from Gartner to the World Economic Forum, we have a big dearth of technical talent and the skills gap keeps increasing uh, between how many are needed and where they are needed to how many we have across the world. Uh, what the Academy is, is a way to look at um, a whole genre of people that probably didn't have that that stepping stone uh, or people whose careers got completely uh, decimated by the pandemic and have to transition into the world of tech and look at how we can bridge that gap uh, in a meaningful way. So not learning for the sake of learning, but learning that you can actually deploy uh, and reduce time to competency and billability. That's really interesting, using uh, L&D as a way of uh, bridging the uh, skills gaps in that industry in, in that particular way, as well as all that, which I'm sure is a exhausting full-time job. You're also a doctorate researcher studying with a PhD, Middlesex University. Can you tell us about the subject of your doctoral thesis? That's what I want to kind of major on in this um, interview, if that's okay. Um, and something about what your researchers have turned up so far. Absolutely. So I'm what they call ABD all but dissertation, which means uh, I've completed all the research. I, I just need to find the time to write 65,000 words. Um, so where, where uh, the, the, the research looks at the future of the learning function or the, the learning profession uh, in technology accelerating hyper growth and startup firms. So uh, organization structures are fundamentally changing. Organizations are changing. The makeup of them is changing. Uh, how, what is the role of the learning function, if it has one, because I'm quite prepared to accept it probably doesn't have one um, in the future. What is the role of that learning professional um, and, and how does it fit with the pace of this of, of the new organization? Um, that that's what the research is about in the nutshell. So um, I spoke with the, uh, over around 70 people from absolutely every continent in the world, from CEOs and chief people officers uh, to thought leaders and learners, in, uh, learning leaders, sorry, in the profession. Um, and I've come up with what I hope will become a, a set of um, a handbook or a recommendation for, for our profession going forward. So apart from helping you to get your PhD, you'll also be releasing this as a as a resource for the profession, yeah? It's what I'm hoping to do. The reason I started this was I went for all these conferences, the technology exhibitions and met so many vendors and I felt that um, there was a big disconnect between what I was experiencing as a learning leader and what people were selling to me. <laughs> there was yeah. a huge disconnect between understanding what's efficacy, what's outcome-based learning, what's learning. How, half the people I met could not articulate how adults learn in, a, in, in, an, in an organization, and they, mm. they had stuff to sell. Um, somehow content became synonymous with learning, and all of these frustrated me, things frustrated me, and I, wanted to see whether there was a difference that I could make, um, not by becoming uh, 
you know, providing yet another service, but having an yeah. information source that was that was free, that was research that was unbiased, that research that was for people like me, other learning leaders. Um, and that's from where the doctorate came about. So a number of interesting strands within your work. We've had a fairly brief discussion about um, this, this thesis before, but even from that brief discussion, a, a number of things came up to me. So one of these is there is a theme there of how L&D and talent leaders buy, how they select the vendors they want to work with. You've talked about the need for sensitivity, reputation and integrity from vendors um, in response to a post on social media from Ashley Sinclair, who highlighted two particularly egregious examples of things going badly wrong. What do you think could be said about the reasons why these jarring mistakes occur and what does that tell us about our industry. For people who haven't read that post, I think there, there are a couple of very um, inappropriate uh, marketing communications that, that came from learning vendors. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, absolutely. So what triggered this, uh, and unfortunately, it just happened to be two in, in a week where uh, there was the, 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 the tragic mass shooting in, in, in in the US and um, a vendor instantly created five pieces of e-learning on characteristics of active shooters and then used the hashtags to do with that um, event to market their platform on which this e-learning sat. Uh, it was just, it felt in such poor taste and uh, there's been a few of that. I've, I've seen vendors suddenly translate packs of e-learning into Ukrainian um, and then use LinkedIn as a platform to go, we're going to make this available for, for, for people who want to learn. And, and it, it just feels that we, um, as a vendor, and I'm talking now as a learning leader, as a consumer, I've only ever been on this side of the fence. Uh, I've been a management consultant, which delivers learning solutions, but I've, th this is meet as your buyer talking. Um, we buy on the back of conversations that we have with other leaders. We buy on the back of what is absolutely necessary for our firm. The days where you bought 20,000 pieces of content under one license and that made a good learning leader, those are going personalization of content, human-centered design, all of these things are becoming relevant. So getting on the bandwagon of tragedy, thinking that you're talking to learning leaders who are magpies after the next shiny object is not going to work. It leaves a poor taste in your mouth. Start talking about the outcomes that your learning gives instead of just telling me how much time my people can spend on it. Um, I think that would be that it's a very, very strong message, and I, I believe in this very strongly. So stop, stop ambulance chasing and just trying to hit the topical issue. I might steal that word for them. <laughs> it, 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 it is absolutely true. Stop looking at what, what sounds cool at the moment. Understand yeah. the industry that you're catering to. Understand the profession you're catering to. We're looking at how can somebody be better in an organization to deliver business outcomes? If that's what your point, starting point is, then what is it that a learning leader would need from you in order to make 
those outcomes possible. Okay, without kind of seeking to excuse those um, inappropriate communications in any way, if we're looking at the reasons why things like this happen, is it possible the contributory factor is that so often in the, the news headlines, training is used as an, an instant, almost knee-jerk response to uh, a, a tragedy or a disaster or things going wrong. So you'll, you'll hear of some kind of awful thing that's happened with policing. And the next thing you know, there's a spokesman saying, it's all right, we've put training in place, you know, and the government will come up with this as well when there's some new uh, scandal from number 10. So often it's a knee jerk response. We're going we're, we're to do the training so it'll be all right. So we kind of get in, in into that mode of thinking that training is a, a kind of palliative for anything that's going wrong. Do you think that's I... working? No, I, I have a very I have very strong opinions on this and often unpopular. For, I'll give you an example. Unconscious bias training is a great one. You know, there, there's a lot of things that we hide behind uh, mm-hmm. to say, oh, this was an unconscious bias. Um, and a lot of things we hide behind because when it's easier to offer training than fix the a- actual problem. Um, I've known of, you know, firms where they've they've had, um, you know, bribery or issues at, at leadership level. And then suddenly you've cascaded anti-money laundering and, and ethics training across the entire firm. So you can then go to press and say, all my employees are now trained on how to behave ethically. So therefore, I don't have the problem at the leadership level where millions went missing. So everything becomes a learning problem if you don't sit to actually address what the problem is before. And unfortunately, as long as learning leaders always respond to a request for a course with yes, sir, three bags full, sir, Hmm. we're not going to ever help resolve this issue. We're not going to be ever to be in a position where you push back and when somebody says give me a course you go back and say what is the business problem you're trying to solve and until that question becomes more fundamental to e-learning or face-to-face <laughs> as a as a response mm-hmm. to being asked we're constantly going to get be in this place where it was D's fault that our people have not incorporated behaviors or not done something So how can learning leaders change that situation and that orientation when it comes to vendor selection and buying technology products? What's your advice for L&D there? My biggest advice is that is, is what I'm not the first to say and I won't be the last, but I don't think has fully set in at all, is how commercial are you? How do you, much do you understand of what the business wants to achieve? Do you understand the pipeline? Do you understand how your business makes money? How it, your resourcing translates into, say, utilization and translates into, therefore, delivery, which then translates into being built? How, do you understand the product that your company is selling and to what extent? And stop saying seat at the table i i hate those words because if you're if if what you offer has never changed then why should anybody and bring you in now uh, and then when a learning leader has that understanding how is that translated then as a vendor understanding what you're selling 
off the shelf I have 20,000 courses by 100 licenses or by thousands of licenses isn't going to work. Walking into me and saying, tell me about your business do you un- so I can understand it as you understand it. And then how can we take that to the next level? What is the outcomes that you're looking to achieve and how can I support you delivering them? So it sounds like you're saying that both sides there, the buyers and the vendors, have to have a sense of what it is the business really needs and how together you can partner to to meet that need. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. John, you, we know now, you know, from when I'm dating myself, but 20 years ago, you can learn how to build a rocket ship on YouTube. <laughs> well, maybe not, but close enough. Knowledge well, you, is- you can learn how to edit a podcast, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps uh, not build a rocket but- <laughs> ship, not quite so impressive. But, well, know. I think the point I'm trying to make is how much of free resources are available out there, you know, whether they're yeah. MOOCs or whether they're, um, any of the platforms at the moment of opening up their course libraries, universities opening up their course libraries, or even um, you know other companies doing a sort of an incubation or an academy or a grad program model. There is so much of learning outside on the marketplace in open platforms. So if people can go, and you also ask the average employee in the firm, if you don't know something, what do you do? They'll first say, I Google it, and then they'll say, I asked the DI next to me. It's rare that the LMS cracks the top three, right? Mm. (laughs) Maybe not even the top five. So what is it that that the role that you need to play in the organization as as a professional going forward? It all ties in. It all is coming back to this, the the doctorate. What, What is that role? we should be expected to pay if knowledge is free, if content is free, if initiative is free, if going and getting out stuff is free. What is that role left for us to play? And therefore, what what sort of a vendor am I looking to help me, to support me through that? So it's a great question. What's the answer? Um, I have a few, and that's okay. why I'm not being prescriptive also with the, the doctorate. So I think organizations going forward look at that so first is as a learning professional you're looking at what that role is and that role yes it's a bit of curation yes it's a bit of um finding the right blend yes it is a bit of um the the development in the traditional sense but i i really believe it is looking at how getting that fundamental understanding of how people need to progress and what a business needs to deliver and then going backwards from that, not starting with a product, which is usually a library of courses sitting on an LXP managed Mm -hmm. by an LCMS in the background or whatever, and then going, this is everything I have, here's my Pandora's box, you pick and choose. So that flipping around of the conversation is definitely what I would say is is the solution. And then how it looks for your organization will differ. In the struggle against the forgetting curve that learning people are engaged in every day, there are no magic formulas, but there is science. For well over a century, psychologists have known that the spacing effect unlocks deep learning and helps learners power through to peak performance. And yet who uses it? Despite the fact that modern learning systems like LXPs make it almost easy, I've written a white paper with Learning Pool that shows how you can use the spacing effect to beat the forgetting curve. Download it now. 
The Learning Hack podcast is supported by Learning News, the learning sector's newswire. Rob and his team are good friends of the podcast, and we really value the help and advice we've had from them, and they do a great job. For the very latest news from around the learning sector, for interviews with learning leaders, the latest from learning sector vendors and features on workplace learning, go to learningnews.com. You also have a focus on tech startups and companies in hypergrowth, and more specifically, when and how they get to set up their L&D function. Um, I, I found this quite interesting because I, I did some work a while ago on what size does a business have to get in terms of you know, maybe turnover and headcount before it actually has uh, an L&D person. Um, typically, what, what, what we found is that small to medium-sized enterprises, as they grow, they'll get an HR person who also does all the training. There might be one person. Um, and this is the reason a lot of tech vendors just won't talk to a company that's smaller than a thousand headcount because there's no one to talk to. <laughs> uh, apart from the fact, you know, the budgets are smaller. Uh, they don't necessarily have the money for the upfront kind of investment in learning technology. They might not have an LMS for them to sell, to, for them to put their content on uh, and, and so on. So that that's kind of the work that I did. I'm interested in what have you found about the part L&D plays in such a situation? Um, so my research has shown all three scenarios and I'll just talk to you about them. So uh, I've, there have been scenarios where uh, they were so focused on development that they brought in an HR administrator to take care of contracts and grievances, that sort of element of ta- tactical HR and brought in straight ahead of talent who looked after uh, learning and uh, talent acquisition. Okay. Um, and and that that model has varying degrees of uh, success because they reached a point when then they had to to grow rapidly and then the policies that you have you know HR is not just something that that's tactical the the strategic element fell through the gaps so there was that I've, I've seen that in a couple of organizations uh, I saw the one where exactly as you described you have HR continue with it for as long as possible and when you get to a certain size a couple of hundred to a thousand is is where I've been um, and you bring in a learning person and then what it is you expect so I've seen uh, them bring from learning coordinators where the, often people from the business don't have any experience in L&D, can you ensure that these guys get their certifications you know, in, in, in whatever Microsoft or, or, or uh, AWS or SAP, et cetera? Or, um, and then they, their role becomes that, that churn. And then they move probably a bit more strategic once that HR lead has become a chief people officer. You're right, over a thousand. Now, I've also seen the odd organization where the learning person is purely the budget holder of little to nothing. <laughs> so mm. they followed a marketplace element. Every single company, uh, person in the organization, it, like you said, it works for smaller ones, gets a annual budget, say 500 euros or something. And they are responsible yeah. for their own development. And the learning person curates that marketplace from where they use their budget to go and purchase that course or that certification and an internal barter forms of I'm not going to use all my 500 can I have about 200 of yours I've got a lot of free stuff and and the learning mm-hmm. person's job is to both coordinate that budget and coordinate that that mix um, 
again, varying degrees of, of success. Um, I, I do believe that learning can no longer be pulled out from the conversation where you're not, you, it can no longer be something that you're just talking about content uh, and you're just talking about buying and, and courses, um, buying and the making of courses. I do believe that learning forms part of your talent agenda. So it, it is from your workforce planning. It's the build versus buy conversation. Should I be hiring the skill or moving people up through strategic L&D and, 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 and proper career pathing and succession planning. Uh, I think it gets incorporated in performance management. And I know a lot of L&D people talk about performance consulting, but yeah. um, pure. But, but if you ask them how many people have seen the development plans that people write in their performance appraisals, the number goes down to very, very small. So it, it's part of that in, enhanced performance discussion. It's part of the how does individual performance translate into an organizational uplift of performance. All of this stuff is more, going to become more and more part of an L&D professionals every day than what was, which was essentially the, the purchase, the creation, the maintenance of content and platform. I'm interested in what you said there about um, just to kind of step back about five minutes or so about organizations where everybody has a learning budget, um, they have the money and the L&Ds person has no budget, but is, is just there to kind of curate and advise. Now, because that's a new model, that's something that didn't exist in the old world at all. Um, are there particular com types of companies that use that model? And what are the pros and cons of that situation? Um, so the companies which uh, I, I spoke with, which had the model, um, it was a 50-50%. There was a 50% uh, successful, and that was the, largely down to the tenacity of the, of the learning manager or leader. You know, they, right. they kept, compliance is always kept, and it all, like it or not, it winds up being actual yeah. training. Um, leadership was, uh, the, the marketplace was opened only to the leadership learning that was signed okay. off by management. So only those courses and levels, there was some degree of, of, uh, of siloing of that, of what was made available. Uh, okay. But it was the openness of the, the learning leader to uh, constantly be on top of that curation and purchase technique to evaluate at the end of the year um, what made sense. So if 50 people have gone off separately and got a license to Linux Academy, perhaps we can have a conversation about enterprise licenses to just give you an example and then take right. that in and go, okay, now this is your the way you purchase going forward. The flip side of it, which was the other organizations I spoke with, or, or actually it was across the board, is the cottage industries that set up, the the efficiency you lose, the time frames that um, is important. The, uh, as you start growing, when you get to that magic thousand mark, how do you mm. ensure that what you call a software developer in um, GCP in Brazil has the exact skills of a software developer in GCP, say in India, uh, right. and that became the pro the parts. And then it has a ripple effect because if you can't have a, a global leveling of people, then that affects your career pathing and your succession planning and your uh, deployment when when projects get global. So there is it it, it does work. 
but there are flip sides to it and it all comes down to how tightly the learning leader and the remit of that learning leader to manage these things tightly with their relationships with the regional or functional stakeholders. So it comes back to that again, uh, Hmm. irrespective of the model. Is what you're saying, it works when you're small. When you get larger, that's where you have problems with it. So it, 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 it seems to be saying that as you grow as a fast growing company, you need to change your learning culture just as startups generally have to make some adjustments to their culture as they get bigger, don't they? Absolutely. And one of the biggest observations is that there's less of organic growth in, in the tech industry, right? At some point, you get, uh, you acquire or get acquired, you merge, yeah. you, uh, you, you, you diversify, um, you, and, and when that happens, then you're merging cultures or you're becoming part of a new organizational culture anyway uh, yeah. and then it becomes uh, harder to to maintain something something like this um i think it, it it it's where what you view as out as an outcome for for yourself if if the idea of a learning culture is to to get better business outcomes through enhanced individual performance mm. then what is the method that best suits your firm in order right. to do that and maybe it's this, but after a point of time, it's probably not. So perhaps it's not so much you change your whole learning culture as just the ways and means to fulfil that cultural end. Yes, and it, it, and it is also another place where we tend to falter a little, right? Let's buy the platform and then figure out the strategy later, or let's buy the content library and then figure out how we're going to curated you know let's look at how we're measuring its uh, efficiency based on its utilization rather than on what it's achieved it's i keep coming back to it's just flipping down around what we've been doing always to recognize what should come first yeah So how much of what you're finding do you think is really specific to the tech industry? I mean, that picture you paint there of, you know, people don't, companies don't necessarily grow organically. It might still be just kind of like five people in a room (laughs) for quite a while. And you might get to about 25 and you start to turn over billions. I mean, this has happened with some companies, hasn't it? Like kind of Instagram and so on. And then you get swallowed up by the big behemoth and suddenly you have kind of all sorts of changes around the the way that big organization works, as you say, harmonizing across different territories um, and operating at that kind of strategic scale. That's something we we recognize with with tech. How applicable is that really to the rest of business and organizational life, do you think? I, I asked myself the same question, John, which is why I incorporated a couple of firms um, and their leaders in in my interviews who were going through a big digital transformations and I said um, if what you are doing with technology is fundamentally going to change your operating model then as far as I'm concerned you're a hyper growth and in many ways at least from the uh, from an organization development point of view you're a startup right? yeah. um, 
So I spoke to a couple of energy, oil and gas companies, tobacco companies. Uh, and what I realized is that uh, the issues exist even there. As, as soon as technology touches the widest amount of population, um, there is going to be a change or they bring, it brings about a change in how you operate. Um, it's just that, again, if you, as a learning person, fail to see technology as the enabler to what you're doing, but see it constantly as a solution to, to fix a problem, uh, it makes no difference on the size of your company. You're going to wind up with these questions coming back at you again and again. Uh, and it was something that they had as well. It was yeah, so bigger company, bigger enterprise platforms, but fundamental business outcome and individual performance based questions. It doesn't matter on the size of your firm. You still have to address the same thing. So that's interesting because those industries you mentioned, you know, tobacco, oil and gas and so on, one doesn't necessarily tend to think of those as being in a fast growth area more in terms of managed decline, <laughs> I'd, I'd have thought. But so what you're saying is it's not specific necessary to the tech, to, to the to the sector, the business sector and the tech sector, in terms of the tech sector, it's to do with the influence of digital transformation on your industry. Absolutely. And uh, every, everyone is, so the, the ones you're thinking about of managed decline, so, you, you know, tobacco companies are now no longer selling cigarettes or you know they're coming up with alternative ways to keep the habit but they you know have a better impact on your health uh, oil and gas companies that we call them oil and gas let's say energy companies are talking mm. renewables you know you have an yeah. oil company trying to get you to use less oil so um, and and all of this the a way for that messaging and the way for that operating model to change is embedded in technology and the whole organization follows and effectively what is a digital transformation so if your whole workforce of, of decades, if not centuries, needs to fundamentally change the way they operate and the way they think. What does learning, what role does learning play to bring about that change in culture, to support that change in culture? And it can't be, let's throw another course on the platform. Yeah. Can you give us an example from the people you've talked to of somebody who is in that position in one of those fast-growing companies going through digital transformation very quickly and how that how L&D has to respond in that situation or, or how they did oh that's a good question um I think it's it's varied um it, it it's everybody's still in the midst of it um and what they've wound up doing is um no, nobody's completed a digital transformation. Let's put it that way. I, I don't think anybody ever completes really a digital transformation. Yeah, yeah. So you have, what do I need to do to address the immediate change? And there is a lot of change management and learning based on behavioral change that needs to come out. Marketing plays a huge role. You mentioned Ashley Sinclair before. Um, we don't realize the importance of marketing in learning. We, we truly don't, you know, if it's, Learning people are like, if I built a course and nobody took it, did I really build a course? Like if a tree falls in the forest. Um, yeah. 
so a lot of communications, um, coordinating with marketing, coordinating with learning, coordinating with what the new behaviors that the organization wants seen to exhibit with culture. When people have addressed that as the fundamental of their learning strategy, then the technical bits of what they need to train people on becomes easier. Um, and so this is less from the companies I spoke to, but my own experience, right? As a management consulting, consultant, I've done SAP uh, learning implementations way back in the day. And it, it was always simpler when you're in, putting in place huge enterprise systems, which are going to change fundamentally how people work, how they procure, how they um, you know, account for things in, in, in a unified way. The first thing you deal with is is how somebody accepts the change. I really believe the change management, communication, and marketing sit. If that's your basis, then what learning you have to provide is easier to build up mm. on. That's interesting because I remember a, a consultant years and years ago saying to me, "All learning is about change. So every learning is a change. So that's." Where, where we should start and what you seem to be saying in learning in these types of situations of digital transformation change management is a is a huge component of that if not the important driver for how you operate absolutely if every every learning done by us as human beings and you know the learning profession itself is is social constructivist for want of a better word every bit of learning we do from when we're born to where we are now whether we do it in an organization or whether we do it for self-improvement to an instrument or to uh, or, or a dance is it brings about change and if you are creating something that doesn't directly contribute to performance change behavioral change or culture change or business outcome change then why are you doing it? <laughs> so it's a bit more general than just in particular industries. You, you feel that change is absolutely the root of what L&D should be doing. And, and to quote people wiser than me, the only thing constant is, is that change. So yeah. it's how the, you know, going back to how the doctorate came about, it was our profession changing as fast as the industries it serviced. So what advice would you have then for fast growing companies that are initiating or building the use of learning as enabling and supporting that growth? The days of of the of the rhetoric of people being our biggest asset so is is going. The days of um, having development so you it looks good on the annual report are going. The competition for talent out there is vast. It has led to the skills gap we are in now, you know, terms like the great resignation and all of this. So look at people and how they learn and why you need them to learn as fundamental to your growth strategy, because ultimately it's these people that will take you there. So um, it's more than just learning being part of your policy, the well-being which of which learning is part of, the progression of which learning is part of, the plan for them as your workforce. So the, both the roles, the work that you have is interesting and that they can learn from is just as important 
um, as, as, as anything that you will do to expand your business. And I think that's the, the, the biggest advice I'd give. So given that, think about when you bring in learning, because when is it that you, the funding that you've got is spent on actually developing people? That's another observation, right? A lot of the funding goes in the infrastructure and the setup and the mass hiring and lots of parties. And at <laughs> what point are you looking at how these people fundamentally contribute to your business outcomes? And then you bring in the learning. Been a very interesting discussion. We could go on further, but we have to keep the podcast to a reasonable length because people only spend so long walking their dog or doing the ironing or whatever <laughs> time. Um, so maybe we'll, we'll talk again in future. But uh, just to to round it off, Serena, do you think you can give us some? I, I know this is a terrible thing to say. Where you when are you going to finish your thesis? <laughs> um, because oh. I, I know these things can take years. But where, where should people look out for for that? turning up in the future and how can people follow your thought i'm i'm really active on linkedin i i speak at a few conferences i'm very happy to share there have been about uh, six to eight teams that have emerged under which i have given guidelines uh, learning analytics and measurement is one i've already written about that uh, brandon carson's latest book i've got a chapter on on uh, learning um, analytics and measurement um that i've got on leadership there is on when and where, how to set up a learning function um uh, there are about eight themes uh, in 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 learning Le- marketing for learning is one of them come and talk to me reach out on linkedin uh, and i'll always put in when i'm speaking like I would for this. I'm very honoured to be part of this, John. I have followed you for years. So um, it, it, it's, uh, you'll find me. <laughs> right, so we'll put some links in show notes. And we're very honoured to have had you today, Serena. Thanks for a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thanks, John. <laughs> That's all on the Learning Hack podcast for this time and also the last official episode in the current season. Many thanks to Serena and to our sponsors, Learning Pool. The Learning Hack is completely independent and transparently funded by sponsorship. If you want to help others find us, please like, follow, rate, review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice or on YouTube. That's all for season six, but we've more in store for you in the shape of a podcast swap with one of our favourite learning podcasts, The Death of E-Learning. Look out for that and other bonus episodes. The next full season of Learning Hack and season three of Great Minds on Learning will both commence in September. Till then, stay curious, learning people. Now I finally get it.